Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Today, we are sharing with you a conversation we had with Matthew Ferris on the role of the law in the life of a Christian. He wrote a book that's titled, If One Uses It Lawfully, and the subtitle is The Law of Moses in the Christian Life. It is a great book. It's um, about 110, 120 pages. It's very manageable. Um, I read through it in just a couple of days and highly recommend it. The conversation will hopefully give you some great insight as to the material of the book, because this is a hot topic. Uh, it's something that comes up over and over again. How should Christians be guided by the law if they should be guided by the law at all? Maybe that entices you to hear the conversation, huh? I hope so. And I, I hope it uh, helps resolve a lot of the tensions that we feel when it comes to this topic. I think, I think, uh, Matthew Ferris has some good approaches that helps resolve those tensions. So, all right. So after the music, you'll be jumping into our conversation with one Matthew Ferris. See you then. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Matthew Ferris lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, and has been involved in local church ministry through teaching Sunday school, small group Bible studies, and music ministry. He has previously written Evangelicals Adrift, and he blogs at GentlemanTheologian.com. Matthew Ferris, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks, guys, Fred. Uh, glad to be here. Well, today we're talking to you about the subject of your book, If One Uses It Lawfully. The subtitle is The Law of Moses and the Christian Life. Uh, the title is based on, of course, 1 Timothy 1.8 that says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Could you share with us the grand thesis of the book and why you wrote it? Sure. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, I, I took the title from that 1 Timothy reference. And I think as a grand theme, I might say that I wrote it because I think um, many sections of the church are in fact not using the law lawfully not using it in the way paul uses it um i say in the intro that you know it's a mistake to think that um the law is the sum total of what we are called to as believers in this in this age that is new covenant age um at the same time it's also true to say that the law is not in conflict with the holiness that we're called to, but it's just not coextensive with it, right? I, I use the, I can't remember if I use the illustration in the book, but I, I know I did on, on a blog entry of um, the carnival game. I think it's high striker uh, called that in some places where you come up and you, you whack this thing with a big mallet, right? And the, uh, there's a big chunk of metal that goes up. And if you're strong enough, you, you ring the bell at the top, right? And that's a winner. Um, ringing the bell is what we as believers are called to, Christ-likeness, um, being conformed to Jesus. On the way up, let's say, you know, ringing the bell is 100. It, they often have, you know, marks on the post going up. The law might be 70 right? We go on by it hmm. as we go to conformity to Christ. So it's not that it is uh, antithetical or opposed to the holiness that we're called to. It just doesn't go as far. Now, in the book, you spend a good amount of time interacting with and pushing back against the, uh, the rule of life view of the law. 
which seems that most Christians seem to embrace that concept by default. Um, it seems that even just the, the general sentiment of the Bible Belt is that, hey, the Ten Commandments, they're a good foundation for, for life, for society, just in general. Uh, but you say that the Ten Commandments weren't given to Christians as a rule of life to live by. Why is that? Um, I think it comes really from, um, I, I guess, my hermeneutic, and that is reading the Hebrew Bible and what it says about the law and the giving of the law. So it was given at Mount Sinai. It was given to the descendants of Jacob, i.e. Israel. And I think it's Psalm 147 where um, the psalmist explicitly says, you know, he has given his law to Jacob. He has not dealt, he has not so dealt with any other nation. So the law is, is given to Jews. Um, Paul says that in Romans 2 as well. And I know that's a passage that some say, oh, you see here, um, you know, there's the work of the law in the Gentiles. So they have the law too. But I think if you read that carefully, Paul is explicit in saying, you know, when Gentiles by nature do the things of the law, they are a law unto themselves, though they don't have the law, right? He's talking about conscience. He's talking about what many have called natural law, the things we know innately. But I think if you look at um, Exodus 20 and the giving of the law, it is clear that that law was given to Israel. And I guess it's obvious. I don't think Israel and the church are one and the same, right? There's, there is a covenantal difference. And that, that is, uh, you know, Jeremy, to your earlier point, that's probably another overarching theme of the book hmm. um, that a, a, a trans covenantal view, as I call it in the book of saying, you know, we're just going to, we're going to paper over all of salvation history with the law and say that it is, it, it is applicable to all. It belongs to all ages, all covenants. I don't think that is um, a fair reading of the texts. I think the, the evidence says that the law belongs squarely with the Mosaic covenant. And that is a covenant that is temporary and that came to an end. Hmm. And since the law is so bound up with that covenant, that is one of the reasons we can say that Christians were not given the law and are not obligated to the law. And at the same time, we can echo Paul and say, the law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. It, it's not, it's not knocking the law, it is recognizing its proper home and its proper use. Now, there are many striking statements in the book. There are many times where I underlined or put a star or wrote interesting or wrote, hmm, <laughs> you know, that's, I like to interact with my books. Sure. And one of those statements was when you said, when scripture applies the law to mankind, it applies it to mankind in Adam, not to those in Christ. And I'm wondering if, you know, as we're talking about the law being an aspect of the Mosaic Covenant, right. is there still a place for it today in evangelism? You think of, you know, Ray Comfort's main tactic in right. evangelism to walk a sinner right. through the law to show them their sin. Is, the, is that a legitimate use of the law today still, or is even that not, not good? Um, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think it is. And I think Paul... Um, endorses that as well when in romans he says through the law comes the knowledge of sin hmm. right and and i've seen some of those videos as well of ray comfort kind of confronting people have you done this have you done that he's doing exactly that he is revealing sin in his in his audience by doing that so and you know the other aspect of this is i i mentioned that the law is given to jews but um human hearts are human hearts they are common right and so um revealing sin by a confrontation with the law is a legitimate use when people like ray comfort or anyone doing evangelism does that i would say they are confronting the natural man they are confronting the sinner they are confronting who the person is uh, because of, of their relationship to Adam as that first head, right? And so the other, and maybe you're going to get to this, I don't want to jump ahead, but the, 
the headship change, right, mm -hmm. that comes with a believer means that we're now under the headship of Christ, not under the headship of Adam. Yeah, uh, that that's a good point. Yeah, if you, and we can talk about that now. Um, another quote from the book, this is from page 47. You said, death severs the obligation to law. Believers are those who have died and been raised up. Our faith in Christ means a new creation, justification, redemption, and new identity. Because of our identity as joined to the risen Christ, the old relationship to the law has ended. We have died to the law and now belong to another, even the risen Christ. And that would be that functional change with headship, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think that's, you know, Paul in Romans 7 saying, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He uses that illustration of marriage, right? The woman who was married, um, her husband dies. She's now, you know, that previous relationship is severed. So yeah, there is, and I think Doug Moo calls this a realm transfer, right? Mm -hmm. We're under the headship of Adam now, um, no longer under the headship of, or under the headship of Christ, no longer under the headship of Adam. And so that is, that is huge. That is significant. I think it's also critical to see that in, um, you know, Romans Six, you know, Paul says, shall we continue in sin? You know, we have died to sin. How shall we any longer live it, live in it? Therefore, you know, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. That the, the death um, we go through, uh, it, it's a judicial death, if I can use that word, not an actual death, right? And I, I have some... Um, some spots in the book where I talk about this, some people will say, oh, a believer has only one nature. There's not, there's not two natures in a believer. When you press on that, though, I think um, it becomes almost a semantic difference because yeah. for most of these folks, they're not going to say, oh, believers are absolutely sinless. There's no, there's no temptation anymore. They do not sin. <laughs> and you know, no one is going to say that, at least I don't think. Well, there is credibly. a, what is it, the Grace Grace Walk movement? Have you heard of that, either one of you, uh, Ken or Matt? Grace Walk. McVeigh, I think, is the last name of the guy. He wrote a book called Grace Walk, and that there's like a whole, like, as, churches can associate or label themselves as Grace Walk churches. And his his claim basically was, as a Christian, you don't sin anymore. Um, kind of rejected the whole notion of the simul justus et peccator uh, right. you know, language and went to some really weird places with that. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you have to dispense with or ignore an awful lot of the exhortations and imperatives in the new Testament to say that if, if Christians do not sin, cannot sin, then an awful lot of the exhortation that Paul gives in his epistles is just superfluous, mm. I guess. Uh, but all of that to say, um, I think it's important to recognize that Paul calls on believers to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. It's a judicial death. It's not an actual death. And so we have the opportunity to walk by faith, to walk by the spirit and not by law. Now, I want to get into uh, antinomianism and I'll, Ken, yeah. Ken can bring that up here in a minute. But I, I, before we move on to that, I want to still focus on this aspect of um, like the moral law, you know, Ken asked a question about the Ten Commandments right. a moment ago, right. and yes. there's a teaching that's pretty common. It, it just seems like a common understanding of the law where you've got these 600 plus commands and they're not all the same, right? When my ox gores, my neighbor is not the same as don't lie. There's just like a, there's a sure. difference there. Sure. And people have traditionally, at least since Calvin divided the law up into three parts, the civil, the ceremonial and the moral and people who do that most of the time would say the civil and the ceremonial that belongs in the old covenant with Israel that, that, you know, worked for them. God gave it yep. to them, but there's this moral aspect of the law summed up in the 10 commandments that is binding on all people, even Christians, even into the church age. Um, what's wrong with that understanding, dividing the law up, seeing that the, not all laws are the same and saying right. there are certain laws that just continue. Right. Yeah, it's a great question, and it is a very common view. 
I think in one sense, we can acknowledge that uh, categorizing all of the laws given in the Hebrew Bible, um, it, yes, that's something we could do. We could say, well, this, this aspect, this law related to you know, life in the nation of Israel, um, this was you know, more of a moral thing. I think the, the problems with it enter in when the categories are used as you indicate, right? You dispense with the ceremonial law, you dispense with the civil law, but you keep the moral law. Um, in the New Testament, and particularly in Paul, he never uses categories when he talks about the law. And in the, a couple of places, again, Romans 7, where he says, I, I didn't know coveting until the law said, you shall not covet. Well, he's using the 10th commandment there as his example, right? And then in 2 Corinthians 3, when he talks about the law as a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation, he talks about what's in, uh, engraved on tablets of stone. Again, he is talking about the Decalogue. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Um, a number of commentators, even those who, who would be more favorable to the rule of life or the third use, uh, acknowledge that, yeah, it's really, it's difficult to make these distinctions with a view to saying, this is no more, but we must adhere to this. Um, I think I use the example of Michael Horton in the book, yeah, who do. is, he is reformed, right? But he is um, a reformed theologian who says very adamantly, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment is not mm -hmm. a moral commandment. It is ceremonial, right? And so he, he sort of recategorizes that. And I, I can't remember if I made this point or not, but I think it's Exodus 31. You look at that and, and you could make the case, wow, so the Sabbath commandment is really important. Above all, God says, you shall keep my Sabbaths, right? So he, he wasn't indifferent to the Sabbath. Um, usually the way that plays out is people say, well, Sunday is the new Sabbath, and we keep the Sabbath by attending church, and et cetera. But that's, I think, again, that's using the law unlawfully. Um, there is no indication that you can just swap out one day for another and say, well, we'll do it on this day. And, mm -hmm. and, and the Sabbath command was not a command to go to church or gather for worship. It was a command not to work, period, right? So um, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think, again, the way, the way Paul never qualifies um, law with those adjectives of civil, ceremonial, or moral um, is, is an important thing because when he says things like you have died to the law or that the strength of sin is the law, he's not making that distinction. And don't you run into other issues too where you know, similar to even just how you described the, the example of Michael Horton and where he's you know, recategorizing the the concept of the Sabbath there, and you you really, who decides what's moral, civil, and ceremonial when when we don't have that rubric in Scripture, but then also we see how interrelated. Even if we were to accept that framework, how interrelated all of the laws are. Where you can have a civil law that is, or or a ceremonial law that's punished in the civil system. You can have a moral law that's punished in a similar way, and, and they end up becoming all interwoven together and the consequences of breaking a civil or ceremonial law you're still breaking god's command isn't it still moral in that sense is it yes. there's yeah they're all weaved together exactly and a number of commentators do make that point i think you know tom schreiner also says it's very difficult to sort of you know pick these apart mm -hmm. and say well this is moral this is not you have a lot of commands that are not part of the decalogue but are very definitely moral issues, right? Um, all, a lot of the holiness code in Leviticus 18 through 22, very difficult to say, well, this isn't a moral command. Um, I think I used the example of, you know, taking of interest, right? Would someone say, well, that's not really a moral <laughs> issue. Well, the guy who's on the, you know, the losing end of usury, he would probably say it's a moral issue, right? <laughs> yeah. um, 
So, but that you also um, can bring up another point, I think that's important in this is that the law was also um, inextricably tied to the land, right? It, when, he, when God gave the law, it was with a view that they would do this in the land. Um, and so that's, that's also, you know, the home of the law is Israel in the land. Um, and there are, there are also several places, mostly in Deuteronomy, right, where Moses talks about the very thing you're saying, right? You shall keep this whole law, separating them out and saying, well, you know, this part, that may go away. It's all woven together as a unit. And the idea of, you know, keeping some but not, not the rest was simply not part of it. It was conceived of as a whole cloth thing. We have several more questions, but I, there's one more thing I want to ask about this. <laughs> yeah. um, isn't it true that because of the view, um, particularly that covenant theologians, most reform guys, uh, that they take that, you know, there are these three divisions of the law, because they see the moral law as eternally bound up in um, God's decree for creation, that not only do they bring it forward past the old covenant into the new covenant, but they also send it back before Moses and they place the Decalogue in the garden um, and say that Adam was given the 10 commandments, even the resting on the Sabbath day, the, the whole shebang. Isn't that true? Yes. Yeah. Now there's probably some variation among various reformed theologians, but yes, to your point, I think it's the Westminster catechism question 92, where you know, what was Adam given in the garden? And they are explicit to say Adam was given, you know, the moral law in addition to the command not to eat of the tree. So they make a distinction to say just the command not to eat of the, of the fruit of the tree. That wasn't the moral law, but Adam was given the moral law. Um, that's, that's simply, I think it, it, it conflicts with what the New Testament says, particularly in Galatians, Paul talks about, you know, the law, which came 430 years after the promise. So, and, and, you know, to your other point about the Sabbath, God rested on the Sabbath, but there in the garden, he gave no command to Adam that, that Adam would rest, right? Now, that isn't to say that in some sense, the Sabbath isn't bound up with creation. It is bound up with what God did, but God himself specifically links it with the people of Israel and, and makes it, um, it, it makes it something that is part of their identity as his chosen people. I think that's, that's what you get in Exodus 31, where he is so explicit about keeping the Sabbath. But you're right. I mean, that's where I talk about this idea of transcomponental application to say well the law it was there in the garden it is there throughout all of time that's just not not sustainable i think from many references second corinthians 3 um being brought to an end and, and you know all the places you guys probably already know now to just kind of move on from from that and shift the conversation just a little bit uh if if we're we're saying okay these are these are really artificial distinctions and uh you know we're under the law of christ now we find that in the new testament we're no longer under the law of moses and, and if we're making these distinctions you know there's a there's a theological category of error out there called antinomianism literally means against the law right are you therefore on the basis of what we just discussed for all intents and purposes then an antinomian who doesn't care about holiness right uh, I love the question because it comes up um, a fair bit, and I, I used to, I, I tweeted several times um, various quotes about the Christians' um, pursuit of Christ-likeness um, and how it doesn't come by law. And I used to, you know, append on the end, "This is not antinomianism." <laughs> I think <laughs> the challenge there is antinomianism is a word from church history, right? Some I think, say, Luther came up with this um, as, a, as a cudgel to beat his opponents with, who some of them were, were saying more or less what you're indicating, that there is no 
There is no restraint. There is no obligation to holiness. But I think the term antinomianism is um, problematic because it, it seems to imply or infer that the, the solution to, um, to license, let's call it that, is the law, right? That if someone gets too far off the path of discipleship or of pursuing holiness, the correction to that is a bit of law in their life. And that is never Paul's prescription for someone who is erring. He will call them out, but he will say, you know, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Um, and this is where I love um, Brian Rosner's book, uh, Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. It's in the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series. You guys are, I'm sure, familiar with that. Mm. Um, Rosner takes a position, you know, very similar to mine, um, and says that we, we know God's law, we know God's will for us, not through law, but through apostolic instruction and through, um, you know, Paul's commands. There is a view out there that divides everything in scripture into either law or gospel. I think that is a little too naive. Uh, Paul certainly knew what the law was. And when he told the various congregations, right, this is the will of God, your sanctification, right, that he wasn't giving them law, right? And even in the places where he uh, cites some of the Decalogue, right? I think if you look carefully at that, he is not telling them, guys, you have to keep this law. Right, Romans thirteen is a is a um, a good example. Right, owe no one anything except to love one another, and so love is the fulfillment of the law. There is absolutely an obligation that Christians have to pursue holiness, to be conformed to Christ, to become more and more like Him. The means of doing that is not the law, and so. The way Paul instructs believers about right, how to do that, um, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That, that isn't uh, prescribing law. Right? And so I think the charge of antinomianism rings a little hollow because I, I, don't, I don't say that. I absolutely affirm this. I, I got into a um, a discussion, let's call it, an argument with someone uh, online about this who um, is a radical Lutheran, right? You guys may be familiar with Gerhard Forda and his whole um, teaching, but he's, you know, radical Lutheranism does this of dividing everything between law and grace. And if there is um, any kind of encouragement, exhortation, imperative, to be more Christ-like, that's law, can't have that. I don't think that is, that's a faithful reading of the New Testament. It doesn't recognize the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, while we are still in these sinful bodies of conforming us to Christ, right? I call it uh, an under-realized eschatology because you're saying that as a redeemed sinner, there is no hope for you to have any victory whatsoever over sin. And that isn't what the New Testament says, right? Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under law, but under grace. And grammatically in the Greek, I know you uh, interact with the Greek often. Uh, obviously there are cases that Paul uses or, or tenses and in, in cases that are beyond the present imperative, right? Right. Um, however, that doesn't make everything else a mere suggestion. I mean, there are times when there's ought language used in an indicative sense and you yeah. walk away and it's like, well, that wasn't a mere suggestion. I mean, just because it's not in the imperative. So not everything fits so cleanly into a couple of categories, just like with the dividing up of the law into three categories, 
going right. to the New Testament and saying everything is either an imperative law command or not, that to me that just doesn't seem like that would that would work very cleanly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and you mentioned Brian Rosner, and I, I wanted to read this quote from him because I just took a picture of this from your book yesterday. You quoted him, and I thought this is a really good quote um, at the top of your last chapter. Brian Rosner said, Paul never says, as he does of the Jews, that believers in Christ rely on the law, boast about the law, know God's will through the law, are educated in the law, have light, knowledge, and truth because of the law, do observe, keep the law, on occasion transgress the law, or possess the law as a letter or a written code, as a book, as decrees, or as commandments. Paul also never says, as he does of the Jews, that Christians learn the law, walk according to the law, and expect good fruit and good works to flow from obedience to the law. I thought that that's pretty strong, but he's got the old test or the new Testament backing on that. Doesn't he? He, he does. Yeah. Um, and again, I would, I would recommend that book um, to anyone. It's a very clear presentation of that. It really, I mean, it comes back to seeing those covenantal differences and also um, understanding that to say what Rosner said and, and what I am saying is not to say that Christians uh, do not pursue holiness, do not pursue Christ-likeness. It is to say we pursue it in a different way, um, that we have a higher standard. Um, I think I used this example, right? The commandment, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. I think the context there clearly had in mind fellow Israelites, right? When we come to the New Testament, we find love your enemies, but also the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. So yet, yet a higher standard than, than love your enemies, right? So I think those, those contrasts, those differences are part of where we are now in the new covenant. Um, I think I use the illustration of, of sort of citizenship, right? I don't walk around on a daily basis wondering, am I, you know, am I within the laws of, of Canada? Am I, am I okay here? And the reason is I don't live there, right? That is not, that doesn't have jurisdiction over me. It's, I think, true that a number of um, laws in the U.S., are probably very similar, if not the same, to what you'd find in Canada. But I worry about where I live. And where I live now as a Christian is under grace, not under law. And so if I walk by the Spirit, if I you know, walk by faith, this is where the distinction between keeping and fulfilling the law comes in. I will do what the law requires and more if i'm doing those things that paul tells me to do walk worthily walk wisely walk lovingly just those three from ephesians right so so with that we have you, you mentioned uh, different points here through that answer just the, the concept of the differences between the covenants like we're not israel under the old covenant we're under the new covenant as the church in jesus christ We've heard uh, in recent years about, you know, there's famous pastors that make comments about how, oh, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament and, and stuff like that. What is then our current relationship as believers to the law of Moses? How should we be understanding the Old Testament? Do we just detach from it, ignore it, just just focus on the New Testament and the commands of Jesus? What would Jesus do? You know, how, how, would, how would we approach those things? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and I, I did have some interaction uh, with the author you are referring to, uh, Andy on... Stanley. Right, we can say it. <laughs> yeah, um, I he he sent me his book. I actually sent him my book. Um, I read his book. I, I disagree with him on a number of things because I think you need to recognize that the New Testament um, sits on the Hebrew Bible. And even if you just go to Luke 24, right, in the prior to the ascension, Jesus says, 
beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, right? So we get pictures of Christ from the Old Testament. And I think that is one of the richer uses of the ceremonial law, right? All of the sacrifices point forward to the one true sacrifice of Christ. Um, so there's very rich and valuable pictures in the, in the law itself of New Testament truths. Um, Rosner makes this point as well, that we can use the law for wisdom. And we see Paul doing that as well. So when he plucks a commandment, like you shall not muzzle the ox when it's tre uh, treading out the grain, and applies that to ministers of the gospel, you know, deserving uh, a living wage. Um, he is he is uh, applying the law in a wisdom sense. The law contains uh, prophecy, right? And so there are all kinds of valuable uses. So I'm in no way saying that the Hebrew Bible has no value for us. In fact, just the opposite. I think people need to be familiar with the Old Testament, with the Hebrew Bible. Um, there is so much there for us. That's, I mean, the many, many elements of the New Covenant are found in the Abrahamic Covenant, right? And I think there are some, and maybe this is what you're referring to, Ken, is if you diminish the law and the place of the law in the Christian life, that is a de facto devaluing of the Hebrew Bible. I adamantly disagree with that and say it is, it is nothing of the kind. It simply recognizes what the Hebrew Bible is. It recognizes the place of the law. It recognizes those eras. The Abrahamic covenant came before the law, right? So for those reasons, I, I do not unhitch from the Old Testament at all. <laughs> Like we asked earlier an application question about evangelism, I'm curious on this point when it comes to counseling, uh, the application to, to biblical counseling or uh, right. neuthetic counseling, for those who might be familiar with, with that phrase, how does the Old Testament law function in a counseling setting if there's any function at all? I mean, is the, is the solution to, to just tell somebody wear a WWJD bracelet and just look at that anytime you think about sinning and focus on Jesus and that's it? Or do you, can you actually take from the Old Testament and apply it to the Christian life in uh, counseling and instructing another? Um, I think you, you definitely can uh, take from the Old Testament. Again, this is this is to say that the sum of the Old Testament is more than the law, right? It's more than the, than the commandments and the giving of the law. Um, we see all kinds of examples in the Old Testament of faithfulness, of trusting in God, of circumstances that are difficult and believers casting themselves upon God's grace, upon his loving kindness and mercy. So there's definite uses for it, but I think it's important to see it in the context of a biblical theology, right? That the Hebrew Bible gives us things that um, are in some cases different from what we find in the New Testament. And so you need to, you need to recognize that. The counter side to that is, I guess, um, I don't know if you're going to ask about this, but I think it, is, it does have to do with a counseling session in some sense. Sometimes people will be, um, you know, I think this is an official designation in the Catholic Church of scrupulosity, right? Mm. Someone who is really um, just uh, vexed about their inability to do what the law requires um, that is one danger of not recognizing these covenantal distinctions and not recognizing that, in fact, you are free from that obligation. You mm. don't have to do that. Mm. So despair, if you put yourself under the law when God doesn't, if you're honest, you're going to say, I can't do this to the degree that it calls for. Mm. 
So despair would result. Or maybe you say, uh, well, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this. <laughs> then you've got the problem of pride, right? Or you define sin downward and you say, well, I didn't actually do it. I only thought it. And so you define sin downward. And so those three dangers, I think, are powerful reasons to tell a believer, look, you are not under obligation to the law. You are enlawed. You're joined to Christ. Look to him. Look to his love, his mercy. Well, I don't want to get too like into splitting hairs, <clears throat> splitting hairs on this, but I'm I'm thinking maybe a year ago, but definitely a couple of years ago. I if I was listening to this, I'd be curious about what you'd say um, to this question. If I'm if I'm counseling a fellow believer who has been say caught in a lie somehow, bearing false witness, and and here I am in a, in a, like a counseling session with that other person who who is in Christ. Can I take that person to Exodus 20 and say, look, God has told you right here, don't bear false witness. Or am I obligated as a minister of the gospel to only give that kind of instruction from the New Testament? Um, or if I go to Exodus 20, I can say, look, this was given to Israel in this way, but then I have to develop it and give the full picture of the Christian context too. How would you answer that? Yeah. Um. You could, right, go to Exodus. I think perhaps the better way to do it is, is to start out, I think it's Ephesians 4, right? Do not lie to one another, seeing you are members of one another. And you appeal to that person that as a member of the body of Christ, this is not how we relate to one another as fellow members of the body. In fact, this is not something new. This has always been the case. And then you could refer to Exodus and say, God wanted Israel to follow the same. So there is, there is a consistency there. And this gets to the idea that the law is not in conflict with what we're called to, but it's not coextensive. To. Hmm. I don't think you would find the full um, exposition of being members of one another in Exodus that you find Paul making in Ephesians. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thanks for entertaining me with that. Uh, yeah, Cause I, yeah. I know that it, that might get into scrupulosity, right. That I'm even thinking about that, but I, it is a, a curious thing, especially when you get into counseling debates, uh, sure. how we go about yeah, doing that. Yeah. Um, in your book, you quote Calvin's institutes where he said that the law has a use in sanctifying Christians. And I thought this was a really helpful quote from Calvin that kind of sums up that reformed view. And he said, in your quote, that by meditating on the law, we will be aroused to obedience, strengthened in it, and drawn back from the slippery path of transgression. And to use a more contemporary voice, uh, John Frame, like many Reformed folks today, maintains this view, as he says in his systematic theology, quote, the law serves as the standard of what we should do in order to glorify God, and therefore, it also provides a motivation for us to do what is right. Now, I, again, I, I kind of feel like we're hitting the same thing here, but maybe saying it in a different way will help somebody. Why do you disagree with these Christian brothers? Because we recognize them as, as Christian brothers. Yes. But, but why do you disagree with Frame's wording of that, that the law serves as the standard of what we should do in order to glorify God? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And, and, I hope it's clear from the book, I, I interact with a lot of reformed sources, right? And I read a lot of reformed theologians. So this isn't um, just, you know, bashing brothers. And I agree that these are brothers in Christ. But I think the problem with what both Calvin and Frame say is that it, it is directly contrary to what Paul says. Hmm. He says that the law, in fact, did not arouse him to obedience. He says that it aroused him to sin. And he says in, in chapter five of Romans that, you know, the law, um, that the trespass increased, right? It was brought in to increase the trespass. Mm. And he says something similar in Galatians. So I think, and to Frame's point, 
I think that exemplifies the problem to say that this is our standard. It is not our standard. The standard that Christians are called to is not less than that, but it is more than that. And if you stop at the law, I would say you are not reaching that distinctively Christian call that the New Testament issues to us to not just love our neighbor, but to love our enemies mm. and to love as Christ loved us. And it, it is a standard that we have that is that is higher than the law. So again, I would say frame, you know, frame stepped up, grabbed the mallet, he hit and he, he went up to 70, but he didn't mm. ring the bell. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that is, I think, the most helpful way of understanding what the, the argument you're making in the book that this isn't antinomianism it's not a call to licentiousness it's not a call to we're beyond the act of sinning now or anything like that but in fact we've been called to a higher standard i mean it, when when it's framed that way and it's understood that way that just beca because we say the law doesn't have binding obligation on christians today that doesn't mean we're free to go against the law and sin in it in however manner we want we are actually free to follow jesus to obey jesus be conformed to jesus which not only fulfills the law but goes beyond what the law says when when someone can get that i think that unlocks everything else yeah and i think you know to follow up on on the whole calvin frame um question again it's romans six fourteen, right you you know that sin will not have dominion over us and the reason paul says that that dominion is broken is because we are not under the law and so to put oneself or to put another under the law is in a sense to reestablish that dominion of sin mm. over over a person um and, and this is what paul says we're free from Now, there's a there's a quote in your book from pages uh, 56 and 57 where you wrote the new testament however doesn't state that believers become law keepers rather they become fruit bearers something far different instead of law keeping our thankfulness takes the form of becoming a living sacrifice dying to self as the spiritual service of worship we render to god and then later on, on page 97, he says, from apostolic times until now, or uh, 95 rather, from apostolic times until now, it has been a perennial danger that we substitute law-keeping for life, doing rather than being. Can you help us understand these distinctives between the concept of, of law-keeping versus what we are called to not just do, but be as New Testament believers? Sure. Yeah, and I think um, that that distinction is an important one between law keeping and, and fruit bearing. Um, it's again in Romans where you know Paul says we have died to the law that we might bear fruit to God. Uh, Galatians five talks about the fruit of the spirit; those things that are really um, character attributes of the believer, right? Love, joy, peace, patience kindness, gentleness, self-control, those things. Um, and when we recognize who we are, um, I can't remember if I, if I used these words in the book, but the difference between standing and state, right? Our, our mm -hmm. standing in Christ is because of the once for all death and resurrection of Christ. Um, that is unalterable. That is fixed. Our state, however, changes from day to day. Um, the way to improve our state or to change our state, to bring it more in conformity with that standing, uh, is not through the law. Um, and, and the way Paul um, talks about our walk as Christians is by faith, not by law. He contrasts the spirit with the law at many places. And so this idea of bearing fruit is a distinctly new testament thing that this is what comes with walking in the spirit i don't know i i feel like i only answered half the question and maybe <laughs> i forgot the other half but. no that's good just that that those distinctions uh between 
uh, doing and being like, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, sometimes there can be, you know, a miss, a miss emphasis on, on doing and being even among those who try to make a, a that law gospel distinction you alluded to earlier. Even then I find that there is, uh, it becomes an emphasis on certain dues. You you, know? You're, you're legalistic right. about not being legalistic. I right. mean, that's, that's yeah. ultimately what it ends up being. It has to. Yeah. And, and you will, I mean, the, the, the being will, or rather the doing should flow out of the being, right? I, um, and this, this gets again to the, the question of are Christians called to holiness and Christ likeness? Absolutely. They are, we are, but, um, it, it's similar to, um, you know, disciplining children, right? I don't discipline the neighbor's kids. I discipline my kids. And when I tell um, my child, you know, don't do that, it is not with a view to becoming um, something they aren't already, right? If you, if you obey, maybe in a few years, we'll, we'll let you into the family. No, I, I tell them that because they are part of the family. And so we are to become more like Christ because we do belong to him because we are in Christ already. And so that, I think it's, it's one of those perhaps subtle but important distinctions in the way Paul treats the law. We don't keep the law, but we fulfill the law and we bear fruit for God. There's a distinction between the spirit and the law. And even when he talks about good works, which he does at several points, that is never equated with the law. It's always equated with walking by the spirit. He does talk about works of the law, right? But that is, it's always in a negative connotation that he does so. And so for those reasons, I think when you, you know, you can't say works of the law, that's a good thing for believers. Paul doesn't describe it that way. We have three more questions. You doing okay on yeah. time? Sure. Okay. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't address this important aspect of uh, Paul's instruction in the New Testament. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he's under the law of Christ. And right. we see the law of Christ brought up in other places. Uh, Galatians 6 would be another. Right. Um, what, what is the law of Christ and what does it mean that, that he's under the law of Christ? How, how could you explain yeah. that one? Yeah, it is a good question, and it's one of those places, you know, that you allude to where someone says, well, you see, we are obligated to the law. But I think in both of those places, in 1 Corinthians 9 and in Galatians 6, to read under the law of Christ or to read the law of Christ as somehow um, equal to the law of Moses is not accurate, right? Paul is saying, and then... 1 Corinthians 9, he's we're drawing these contrasts between, you know, to the Jews I became as a Jew, um, to those under the law. And I think there he's talking about people like Cornelius, a God-fearer, who he's not a, an ethnic Jew, but he adhered to the law. He was a proselyte. Um, Paul became all things to all men. To those outside the law, he says, I became as one outside the law, though not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, I have an obligation to Christ himself, Paul says. And I think that, that ties it with Galatians 6. The law of Christ is, is, is a, it's a principle of self-sacrifice. And that's what you see in the surrounding verses there in Galatians 6, when Paul talks about the law of Christ. I think I, I quote even Calvin in the book, who says, you know, there is an implicit contrast between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. So even, even someone like Calvin would say, this is not the same as the law of Moses. So I don't think in either of those uh, passages, one could say that, that Paul is, is endorsing any kind of obligation to the Mosaic law. It's something different. It's a principle. This and this final part, we want to we do want to get more practical now as we think about day to day living. 
the language that I think most translations use for that first Corinthians nine passage is under the law of Christ. Right. I mean, so even though it's different, like you can still recognize the law of Christ is different than the law of Moses, but what about this under language? I mean, is there a day-to-day mental awareness that Christians should have as an obligation to a new law now, or how would you explain that? Um, yeah, and I think that word there, it's ennomos, which occurs only two times in the New Testament there. And I think in um, Acts where, you know, the Ephesian riot um, is happened and, and the, um, you know, the town uh, official says, look, you know, this, uh, we could, we could convene a lawful assembly here, but we're not, we're not doing that right now. Um, so under the law of Christ might not convey everything that I think is, is there. Um, I, I can't recall the exact wording now that Darby's translation uses, but it's something different. It's something like, um, you know, obligated in reference to Christ, something like that. I think it again conveys the relationship that we have. The relationship is with a person. It's with the glorified Christ. It is not with a code. It is not with um, a set of commandments. And that speaks to, you know, it's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. This union with Christ. I think that's really ultimately what Paul is getting at there is that he is united to Christ and because of that union he it's 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 almost um it's too little to speak of his obligation there's a privilege that comes with being in union with Christ that Paul gets to glorify Jesus whether by life or by death in anything and everything that he does so i think if we if we reduce that to just saying you know, I signed the agreement to keep these commandments. We're really missing everything that Paul is saying there. I pulled up that Darby translation where it says, not as without law to God, but as legitimately subject to Christ. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that conveys, you know, the lordship of Christ over Paul and, and all the privileges Um and yes, responsibilities that come with that. Now, given the fact that you know the New Testament does speak about being free from the law in in really g- wonderful terms, right? Like this is this yeah. is a joyous thing that we are not bound by the law. Why is it that so many Christians feel the need to make themselves obligated to the law, even if it is just in part? There's they still feel that obligation. Yeah, I, I think. In, in one sense, um, we like uh, clear expectations, right? I remember um, we, we homeschooled for a time and one of the kids uh, at first wasn't really keen on, on the whole prospect, right? But then he got the idea that if he completed his list for the day and the rest of the afternoon was his. So he started coming downstairs and saying, where's my list? <laughs> so we, we like the idea of clear expectations and if we can check off that box and say yes i've done that yes i've done that um it is it is in fact um almost an easier thing to do that um there is also this i guess i'd say a lack of recognizing the covenantal distinctions that are there and a genuine fear that if we say, well, God gave these standards to Israel, and for me to say that I am not obligated to that is in some sense to say that I, I reject God's authority. But that, too, comes from, um, I think, a misunderstanding of who God spoke the law to, as well as not appreciating the things that we as Christians are in fact called to, to say that we are not obligated to the law um, is not to say, you know, we don't, we don't pursue holiness, but so for that, you know, there is a, I think a, a genuine fear of saying 
or of feeling that you are somehow casting off God's authority to take this view, but I, I think that's inaccurate. If you ever make a, like a shorter truncated second edition of your book, it could be titled, where's my list. I like that. <laughs> where's my list. Yeah. Now, now something I just thought of as you were um, giving that response and you deal with this in your book, obviously it's pertinent, but now I, I want to tie it in here before we end um, is in what way could you encourage the Christian listening to this with the new covenant promise that the law would be written on his heart or her heart? Uh, and you don't need to look for a written code because there's been something put on your heart now that the spirit uses in guiding you through this life. How would you articulate that when we think about the day-to-day duties of a Christian? Sure. Yeah, um, it's a great question, and I, I do interact a little bit with some of the um, scholars on Hebrews 8 and talking about that passage. Um, I think one of them says it's it's the law Christologized, right, or, or radicalized. Um, that's not a bad uh, way of thinking about it. Um, I think one of the chief things is by meditating on Scripture. Right? You, you have to read your Bible. You have to read what the New Testament says. And when you do that, you get not only the privileges that come with being a, a believer, the position, right? We now have the Holy Spirit within us. We are sealed with the Spirit. That is, again, I would argue, a New Testament distinctive. Um, the Spirit came on uh, believers in the Old testament but did not indwell them and i think you get that from john's gospel as well he is with you shall be in you it is to your advantage that i go away so that sealing of the spirit that paul talks about in ephesians 1 is critical um walking by the spirit in one sense means that we we aren't on autopilot right we we do need to pray we need to be in communion we need to be in community for sure, right? Because, um, you know, that's, I guess, a rabbit trail, but it, it, it was, um, I've heard, you know, in the post-COVID world, a lot of folks haven't come back to the corporate gathering of the church. Huge mistake, I think. You can't, you can't live the Christian life alone. You need the gathered community. You can't do baptisms in the Lord's Supper online amen that's that's my commercial <laughs> coming back to the corporate gathering um so yeah it, it it is it is communing with other believers with god through his word with recognizing these distinctions that the new testament sets before us recognizing the standard to which we are called and that the law was able to command but it was not able to empower. Mm. And I think that is a, another critical piece of Paul's teaching. And that what he says is now with the spirit, we actually have power to live in a God-pleasing way. I love this quote, another one from the book where you said, the fatal weakness of the law is that it enjoined obligation, but provided no transformation. And that's exactly yeah. the issue, isn't it? Um, yes. And the, the law being written on believers' hearts in the New Covenant community, I like the idea, uh, the expression, the explanation of the law Christologized. I mean, we recognize that interwoven fabrics, that's not put on the hearts of all believers in the New Covenant community, exactly. that, that yeah. law. Or resting on Saturday, that's not put on the heart of New Covenant right. community members. And so maybe just in closing, address the person who's wondering is this even that big of a deal? I mean, okay, if a person keeps nine of the 10 commandments and looks to the, to, looks to those as a guide in the Christian life or someone, you know, looks to uh, the, the new Testament view that, you know, we're dead to the 10 commandments. We've died to the 10 commandments to be enjoined to Christ. What difference does it make? Cause isn't the result the same. Uh, and someone who might want to minimize the discussion that way, how would you answer right. that person? Yeah. Um, I would probably, you know, articulate some of those things I mentioned before. There's a danger of pride. There's a danger of minimizing sin. There's a danger of despair. 
because if you're honest, you can't do it. Um, but there's also the danger of um, just not, not coming to the full uh, calling with which believers are called to walk. Um, it, 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 it's, it's hitting 70 rather than ringing the bell and ringing the bell of discipleship, of pursuing Christ, of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we were called to. And law will not take you there. It will not get you to that goal. Only Christ will. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned about a, a shorter version of the book. Um, I did do a blog post, um, 10 things about the law of Moses and five objections, right? Where I kind of summarized the main points of the book. So I can, I could send you guys that link. Yeah. Um, if you're interested, but I tried and summarize, you know, some of this and what the position is and what it isn't saying, right? You picked 10. Good job. 10 things about the law of Moses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. Well, Matthew, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. We encourage all of our listeners. There'll be a link to where you can pick up a copy of this book if one uses it lawfully. So I encourage you to to check that out and to continue studying this important topic of how we should be rightly understanding the law. But Matthew, we do thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. And I should throw in, you can find him on Twitter where you will find his woodworking projects, like those beautiful bookshelves behind them, and a just never-ending flow of puns based on adverbs he is very committed to that persona on twitter this is true yes (laughs) thanks for coming on today appreciate it thanks guys